Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show 111. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Today is the day, yes. Eventually we have part one of Lord Dickens' Declaration by Larry Santuru. Hopefully you've heard all the kind of progress reports and everything like that. And today's the day when it kicks off and when we kick off the little bit fundraising for Jeannie and Spider Robinson. And the show is going to be slightly different where it's just going to be me doing like an introduction, Larry's story and then Larry giving a little outro at the end of his story or end of part one. It's going to be three parts of the story. Like I say, a little change, we're going to have nothing else. I just want to really concentrate on this story, on Larry's story, which is just fantastic. And I've actually only, at the minute, listened to part one. Do you know what I mean? It is, that's the same for me now. It's, I'm listening to it in stages as well. Larry's narration and everything, honestly, it, you're just in for such a treat. Why have we done this? Why has Larry sat down and for a few months, you know, penned this story? And why has Skeet just sat down and done some amazing artwork for it? It's all for Spider and Jeannie Robinson. Jeannie Robinson at the moment's going through like a hell of a time. She's got cancer and, you know, I, I think it's just hitting into their funds over there. And, you know, I just thought it would be so nice if like the Starship Sofa community can just kind of get together and, you know, just help, you know, someone over this time, especially Christmas, over this time of year. Do you know what I mean? And... It would mean so much to me. I know it would mean so much to Larry and Skeet. Just to know that their kind of work is not just, you know, you listen to it and then that's it. You, you have a look at them and the pictures and they're gone and that's it. It That's not what it's about. You know, fair enough. We're giving this work away there for free now. You know what I mean? It's there. Please take it. Please, please enjoy it. But the main reason is you'll come over to Starship Sova. You click on the link. That 
Josh has been working as well for a few days on the kind of website to get this link all up and running and get the kind of shop up and running so you can get this download, you can buy this PDF download. You know, that's the main reason. We can't do anything more. You know, we're giving this story away. This, honestly, as well, mind you, this is a fantastic story. You know, it's all kind of do with the, the Starship Sova Stories Volume 1, that image that Skeet did. From that point of view, you know, it's been born from that kind of picture. And that alone, you know, if it was even to just raise funds for Starship Sova, that was a, it's a great idea. But it just leaves all that behind. You know, this is kind of, you know, the real world now, you know, and I just hope everyone, honestly, can just get behind in this month and just support what we're doing here. Just to raise a little bit of money, just to, you know what I mean? And it's going to be a, you know, I know it's going to be a drop in the ocean for Spire and Genie, but it's just the thought that we could do it, do you know what I mean? And, like I say, the amount of work, Larry, you know, when you listen to this story, You'll appreciate what Larry's done. If you if you do buy the, the PDF, you'll appreciate what Skeet's done. And they've done it for one reason, do you know what I mean? And all I'm hoping now is, you know, for, for that one reason, you'll go over and you'll just donate a little bit of money, you know, and you'll get the PDF and you'll you'll have it on. You can put it on any device there. Please, please, please do that for me. Do it for Larry and do it for Skeet and especially do it for Jeannie and Spider Robinson. If you come over to the site, you'll you'll see the book there, Lord Dickens, and Dee's actually, you know, put together, I'm forgetting Dee as well, Dee has spent a few days there putting all this together, sorting it all out, you know, getting it all, getting the cover sorted for it, making it all look distressed like an old carried around book, he said, like a book that's been carried around. If you go there and you, you click onto it, then you get taken to the shop, and like I said, the PDF or the download is £2.99, but you see, I didn't want to stop there, no, there is, it's up to you. That's, you know, there's a few different levels of payment. You know, you get the same thing. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, you don't get any specials with this. You get the same thing. First entry level, it's free. Do you know what I mean? We're going to do it here over these few weeks. And, you know, I can't get any cheaper than that. You know, listen to it, enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? But please come over and, you know, buy it. You know, you don't even have to have it on your phone. Just donate the money. That would be fantastic. But you can get it at two ninety nine, and then it goes. There's a ten pound one, there's a twenty pound one, a fifty, and then a hundred. Do you know what I mean? What can I say? Do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially Christmas time. You know, I lost my mother in law Eunice to cancer two years ago, and she meant the world to me. And I kind of express how much she meant to you know Reed and Ellie, my son and daughter, and like see it. That's gone now, you know, and we've got like a few photographs and we've got loads of memories, but it's, you know what I mean, this thing just eats into your family and it's horrible, do you know what I mean? And you never know what's going to, the outcome's going to be, but if we can help just one little bit by doing this, like I say, I would love you if you all went and just clicked on that £100 donation, do you know what I mean? That would just be fantastic. But if you click on the 2 dollars one, do you know what I mean? Do that and... You know, I know Jeannie's got some grandchildren. You know, there's pictures there holding her, like a little baby granddaughter. These are special, special times. And, you know, and I haven't kind of mentioned it anywhere else. I just wanted it to be like an in-house thing so we can kind of do it for, you know, do it for Larry and Jeannie. And it'll end at the end of December. Do you know what I mean? And that'll be it. You know, once that's gone, then it's Larry's story and everything like that. And I'm hoping with the book that we can just send over a little bit of money, you know, this time of year which will just be fantastic. And just give a little bit of kind of, you know, everything's not doom and gloom in the world. 
So please, again, 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 I honestly cannot stress enough. Do it for me. Do it for yourself. Do it for yourselves. Do you know what I mean? Come over and just donate a little bit of money. I feel like Bob Geldof here now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> do it, man. For God's sake, do it. And just make me feel good about ourselves. You know, we can do this one thing. And we're just about to get into the story now. And Larry's just sat down and done this as well. You know what I mean? And that's the best bit of charity as well. He's letting everyone sh- share this story. Which I just think's an amazing act as well. Larry, honestly, I cannot thank you enough. You know, I've listened to part one. I haven't listened to the whole story yet. It is fantastic. And the narration is just, you know, nobody else could have done this as good. As, you know, you're in for such a treat. With Larry's, you know, he's kind of theatrical background there. He goes right into it. Go on there, big fella. At the end of the story, Larry's got a little outro as well. And I'm going to play that and then that's it. You'll not hear, you're, this is the last you'll hear me. <laughs> so, please, please, please do this for Starship Sofa. Let we be able to help someone, you know, or just a little bit of light relief, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's not the right bloody word. <laughs> See, I'm no good at this fucking thing. Please, all I can say is do the best you can help with support Genie and Spider Robinson. So the Starship Sofa on this day is so, so proud to present. Lord Dickens' Declaration by Lawrence Santoro The others followed. He pushed deeper, moving toward the cold. In sleep, the other world had been warm. Awake, he had been warm. The fur kept him warm. His gut full made him warm. The cave was warm. Fire made it warm. But when he rose to make water, and the other world had gone, and he stood by the cave entrance, he felt the cold. That was right. It was yet the cold time, still the dark time. From where he stood, the dark beyond the home cave filled the world. The small lights were in the sky. Across the valley were larger lights. They were other fires, he knew that. The fires were in other caves, in the mountain across the valley. The lights above, he looked up, and he did not know. Looking, he had shaken off the warmth from before and breathed chill through his nose, his mouth. Best to live in what is. He knew that much. The world taught that. His stream made a fragrant black streak in the soft whiteness that covered the ground in a thick mat. Then his back hairs had tingled. A new cold. This cold flowed from the deeps of the cave. None went there. He never had cold come from there. He chattered with this. His hands shook. His water things spat a few more drops into the whiteness outside. Then it stopped. When he returned to the fire, the cold from the deep was more urgent. He looked toward the deep and breathed. He tasted it. Go. See. That urge came. He took a burning branch from the fire, breathed it into life, and went to look for the cold in the deep. The others followed. He didn't look. He knew their smell, the noise each made. They were near, and that was enough. 
At the far end, the cave narrowed to a crack. None had gone into this narrow place. His flame lit the opening. He saw dark beyond. Dark and... and something. He smelled. Darkness. Old animal. Animal now gone. Her cubs now gone. He smelled those and... He squeezed between the rock walls. Rough, hard, cold rock scraped him front, back. The others followed. Then the white fall began. It blew in his face from ahead. On his face the white fall was a sting of chill, then wet like the whiteness on the ground. He sniffed, and he caught scent of... He sniffed again... There was himself. There was the branch, the flame. There were the others who followed. Behind them was the home smell with all its parts. Nearby he smelled the rock and the animals who had been. That left something other. He smelled something not ever ahead. The flakes of soft whiteness hissed in the flame. He carried ahead of him as he squeezed forward. He had no word for this. Philby felt the orders of probability go wiggling off to wherever they went when they wiggled away. Well, just numbers, he knew that much. Still, they shredded on his flesh, flibbered him silly. Then he slipped. The day the people went woof, away, quickly, too, too quickly— the marble and cast-iron imperative of the Athenaeum, the horsehair and petroleum stink of the era, the smoky taste of good malt, all of it sloughed off him, skin, hair, nose, tongue, and clothes, and he tumbled without ceremony onto the sun-bright disk at King's. From all fours the thought came to him, all things bright in this brightest of all possible worlds. He was glad, glad to be back, glad to be alive, glad for the comforts of 1902-YA. Subsequent to that came the realization that he was freezing. The air was adrift with the usual frost of temporal displacement. <laughs> the snows of yesteryear, he wondered. Flakes danced in that way, peculiar to particles aloft, in a still, still room. Then another thought came, the realization, it can be done. Man may ride unskinned to the eternal past, untethered to now. Oh, lovely! To his previous thought he added the notion that he must say something to the men of physics. I'll tell Brown, Philby thought. Then, what am I to tell Brown again? Ah, yes, motion in still air, he thought. That is what I must tell Brown. <laughs> what a confusion it all is, he laughed. Befuddlement reigns, he called aloud to the twinkling air. The words echoed. The iron door unsealed. The warm inrush from the reception salon beyond scattered the flakes in a swirl. Mad, mad they are, he thought, of the flying snow. He rolled onto his back and watched the dying dance of it all. Ah, lovely to the point of... of... 
Uh, there was a word he sought but could not find, as though it had fled his life. And he, Philby, <laughs> a master of literary history. <laughs> then they were gone, the flakes away, all away, he thought, melted upon mild, mild air. Philby's hands, his body, shook. Oh, the things he had seen with these eyes, the air he had breathed. The whiskey he'd drunk, how he'd been touched. Master Mariah, pfaff, Mistress Lizzie's virginity indeed. He wanted to spit, but didn't. This, now, this, this was something. He wanted to tell her, and he would. Oh, wouldn't he ever. He sat up to do just that, and wasn't he surrounded, ringed by instructors, lesser professors, sub-assistant deans from whose ranks Philby himself had only recently ascended to that elevated station, lesser master of history and literature. Gowned and gloved, they waddled through the hatch from the warm dimness of the salon. Rubber hands gripped him, and with mumbles and stutters appropriate to their stations and to his— the lesser light of King Salisbury rushed him from the disk. "'Mariah has peached!' he realized aloud. "'Mariah!' he shouted her name. He wanted to spit, and he did. Master Mary Mariah had peached him. Oh, how he'd love to see that horrid face right now! And then, of course, he did.' The lower learners shuffled him into the dark, oak-panelled salon adjacent to the temporal stage and into the shadowed presence of Master, Master Hillier, and with him side by side the awful, no-good, miserably smug, perfidiously peaching Master Mary Mariah herself, both flickered in warm firelight. "'Bah!' Master, Master Hillier said. "'Poor Philby!' Mariah said, stepping between him and the fire, blocking its warmth. Coffee, Philby stuttered. The cold, of course. The chill constriction in his chest. The thrill of the ride, the bare-backed ride, occasioned the stutter. And, of course, the rushing joy of his proof, that too. Not to mention the awful, rotten, grasping betrayal, that too. Oh, that too made him quiver. P "'Please, coffee,' he chattered. "'Colloquy,' Hillier grunted. Philby's sixty-three-year joyride to 1839 Y.A. was the subject. The colloquy repaired ad hoc to the master's corner of King's Calf. "'Something's different,' Philby said to no one. Propped between Hillier and Mariah, he still staggered, was that voyage befuddlement, he wondered. No, he said aloud, it's something. The, the calf, it's, it's different, yes? Maria smiled, an awful thing to see. Late day sun spread through the hall from the wide, clear windows of King's College calf. From the great array on the plain below them, a wash of white light rippled across the high ceiling. The smell, as ever, was in the air of burnt coffee, late afternoon student, and dust. Nah, Hildur stopped. Yes, he glowered at the master's corner. The physical sciences had assembled there, in masters, and among those interlopers, the lesser Newman, 
held forth. Uh, "'Had ancient man not given up the gods, well, well, how different a world, eh?' Hillier's very beard bristled as the lesser Newman continued. The grey men and women in white nodded general agreement. "'How different we, had they retained those superstitions, imagine a world plagued by gods.' in the fear of gods, not to mention the behest men might make of them, one grey fellow said to the side. Philby, chattering, barely heard. Whist! A flick of Hillier's hand deposed the sciences, men, women, and the lesser Newman whisked away without complaint, how could they, to a lower table, one more suitable, one near the undergraduates. To colloquy, then. Flame-red Master Philby had gone a-voyaging, sans skin, sans pilchard, sans departmental leave, sans all. He had cranked the beast and slipped himself away to 1839, year of the autark, riding his own, his own fleshly person, sixty-three years down, and to the Athenaeum, London, there to witness Lord Dickens's public discourse upon the eternal beauty of, and his proclamation of abiding love for Her Majesty. Philby's hobby-horse, says his mastery thesis on Dickens, man of commons, man of letters, and deposer of a queen, was known both among Philby's colleagues and his students. All that was as it was. Bad "'Bad business,' Hillier chuffed. "'Bad, bad business.' "'You mingled, lesser Master Philby, were seen.' A smile upcurled the corners of Master Mariah's dewy lip. Whist, Philby said. "'Aye, aye, did I, was I?' He gave Mariah an eye that might have killed. "'Hadn't she known, hadn't she suggested such a voyage was possible? Well, "'She had.' Hadn't she, in fact, Philby realized, primed the pump, waxed eloquent on the subject of the superiority of such voyaging, if such voyage were humanly possible? She had, she had, in fact, set him in motion. Commons, Commons will meet on this, Hillier said to Maria. Bear back, he huffed. Bad, bad, bad business. Philby squinted at the light. Here's something, he said. Uh, "'Rehung the portraits, have they?' His eyes tripped from dour face to dour face upon the walls. He stared at the trompe-louis library shelves, the painted instruments of a musical nature, and all such devices, literary and historical, that festooned the spaces between hangings. Maria raised her eyes from the small, commonplace book in which she wrote— Alas, she sighed to her superior, then turned her face, her horrid face, to Philby. I fear, lesser master, the commons will meet upon this breach. That closed her book. Philby squeaked a peek at the woman through coffee steam and rum fumes. Isn't there a gleam in her eye, though covetous eye, he thought, and there was. The faintest smile drew her awful lips upward. If I could just, he thought, oh, a minute alone with her, and wouldn't I? 
"'What made you think?' Hillier began. "'Oh, never mind. You didn't think, Philby. "'Ride unskinned, without leave, no plan of record.' <laughs> "'He dismissed it all with a wave of his hand, "'no less imperious than the one that had dispersed "'the men of physics and chemicals. "'Without protections,' Master Mariah whispered. "'The smile still played on the corners of her mouth.' Around the room, men's students lounged in tweeds and straw, their boaters at the ready, for later punting on the Avon. In high collars, women's students perched on bustle and puff, later to be punted. Below and among them, physical sciences droned on of time, cogs, chemicals, and such. "'Ah, well, there was, there was no harm done, Master Master Hillier, no harm at all. You see—' Philby raised his arms above his head to show his uninjured self, then quickly gripped his cup for warmth. It can be done, you see. No need to slide back skinned, invisible, protected from the world, and backed with a tin sardine. You see? Nay, with discretion, care appropriate, we can go as us, breathe air, touch books, people, and bring no proof, Hillier grunted. "'Without skin and pilchard, lesser Master Philby, the record is but hearsay. It's nothing more than that.' Philby ignored the treacherous Mariah and pressed the point to Hillier. "'I am a scholar,' he said, a, a lesser master, but I've gone and returned, and the proof, it's here!' He tapped his skull. "'In my mind, this brain informed by, by knowledge, enhanced by education, I have touched him. Dickens touched him.' Well, that remains. Mariah's smile widened to include hideously perfect teeth and gums. To be seen, she finished. Yes, well, what of your students? Hillier growled again. What of your course of study? Philby squinted at his master-master. Your job, man, your job. Surely you'll be sacked. Not to mention, of course, Mariah began. Ah. <sighs> At the table below, an ancient man of physics had picked up a thread from the lesser Newman. "'Well, who knows of yesterday?' he wheezed. "'Who, who speaks for yesteryear? These, these literary historians!' His hand trembled in their direction. "'Even in their darkling skins, invisible, yet they touch the past. Why?' All our yesterdays may be but imagination all compact, and today may be but dust in the wind, less than dust, the present no more than a dream, gentles. Hillier's sudden voice boomed about the calf. History, sir, he called. Silence abounded. A fool physics folk, he muttered to Maria. Then again, aloud, for all the universe to hear, "'History, sir, is solid, solid, sir, immutable.' He waited through the stillness, then turned back to Mariah. "'You were saying, Master Mariah, not to mention, of course, you said.' "'Oh, nothing,' she whispered, smiling at Philby. "'Nothing, nothing, nothing at all.
Lord Jesus Josephson, born a simple tradesman by the Sea of Galilee, nineteen hundred and some few odd years before Philby's stolen ride, to make an academic point, had settled matters of far more moment. Jesus Josephson rose from nothing among his people, and in but a few decades had split the free trade suzerainty of Rome— so doing, this man, otherwise destined for obscurity of life and posterity, became senator first of Judea, then first lord of Rome, and in his thirty-eighth year was appointed autarch of all. This Jesus, it is held by various masters throughout kings and the world, is he who put a halt to most of the world's small squabbles. There is plenty for all, he is written to have said. Praise be that we are a people who built for naught but peace, someone said of the Senate over which Josephson held sway. Well, yes, but we know business, too, First Lord Jesus said. When Rome declared the birth of Lord Jesus as the incept mark of the era, well, there it was. From that date began the tick of progress toward... Well, there it was on the plain of Sarum, that once empty place of grass and chalk and naught but sheep and thyme, there it was, the college of King Salisbury, the dome of kings perched atop Sarum Hill, crowning it all, and around it there in the year of the autark, 1902, as far as fleshy eyes could see or the damp grey mind of man conceive, was the bright array, the beast, "'spread and birthing more of itself, spiralling outward as it did. "'It began—well, who can say when it began or what constituted the beginning? "'Master Philby had a notion, so too did Master Maria. "'As master-master of literary history, the prime college of kings, "'Hillier's thought on the subject prevailed. "'1348 Y.A. was when the beast began.' Occam's notion set it forth, or so Hillier said, and there it was. Vasco da Gama came out of the western sky. From across the sea it came. The great airship descended majestically, hove to, then latched on to the nipple of King's Dome landing, some three hundred and thirty-three meters above the plain, and at the exact centre of the first ring of the still-spreading beast. Among those disembarking, Mr. Poe, Edgar to his friends, to all else in the world, Poe the poet, the jolly wag, the president, the sage of Brindonia across the waves, hey-ho, Poe, Poe, hey-ho, the song went, that had become a near anthem for that nation, and many other names— all these were Mr. Poe, who, at nearly one hundred years, remained a hale and hearty fellow. As Philby, Hillier, and Maria entered Vasco, old Poe exited. He did not so much walk as he strode the heaving ramp between airship and landing stage. Philby, dizzy from the height and the uncertain up-and-downward flexing of the ramp, tried to pause. He strained to see more of Poe, urging him from behind, Dour Master Master Hillier, perfidious Master Mariah, and the press of the other passengers forced Philby onward 
Yet at the port Philby gripped the frame. If, if I could have just but a word, a, a few moments with Mr. Edgar there, just a moment or two of conversation might know, Hillier said. And they were through and into Vasco's inner vastness. "'You see, he's a living link,' Philby moaned, "'continuing as though discussions still pressed the matter. "'Poe there, you know, he, he knew Charlie Dickens, he knew the man. "'They were not mates, no, you see. "'No, but they were connected, you see, "'tied by politics and literature back in the old times.' "'By the time they reached the Grand Salon, "'his argument had withered to a mutter. "'Hillier sat.' Philby stood and fumed, off to London, there to meet the commons by which his name, no doubt, would be struck from the roll of masters, denied forever, for the present at least, the chance to ride the beast to the past, to Lord Dickens's past, any past. He'd no longer feel the niggling of the machine as it slipped him through. Well, Philby suddenly realized he had no notion how the thing worked, what it did. When he slipped, he had truly none. He had ridden the beast time after time, so to speak. He'd set dials, adjusted parameters, but how the beast did its work he had not a clue. Master Philby was a man of literature and history, no piddling physics man or smelly science boy he. The beast counted, computed, that he knew— from every particle of the voyager and the metal skin he wore, the beast created a shell of probabilities and a matrix of absolutes. Common can't that. And thus, wrapped, assessed, defined, and covered, the voyager was bumped upon the disk back, back, wherever, whenever, however. Once there, he or she would dangle for a time before shuffling off the coil and thus be snatched back. But more than that, well, Maria, spectacled with round and deep blue lenses, leaned on the rail by the observation window. From below, the silicon brightness of the sunflowers on Saturn Plain uplit her chin, her nose. Shadow Mariah's played overhead and danced in the gracious folds of Vasco's tapas hangings. "'Philby, come watch with me,' she said. He joined her at the rail. Ring on ring of the beasts spread out across the countryside below them. Rising above the plain, the iron sunflowers spread with the machine rings, their bright collectors bending heads in concert, tracking the sun for its energies.' On the boarding stage of King's Nipple, flanked by sons, daughters, Philby could not tell at the distance which, Poe, the grand old man, feigned surprise, such a crowd, such a gathering there, to greet him, so gracious, so grand, he could just imagine. Master Maria's smile spread below her lenses. A man who understands a gesture there, she nodded toward the ceremony. One of life's peaceful joys is Mr. Poe, wouldn't you say? Philby sighed and wished the portals were open, wished he had the fortitude sufficient to hurl Master Maria through it, or, or myself, he mused, or us both. You feel I have wronged you, yes? she said quietly, 
Philby grunted. Perhaps I have, lesser master, perhaps. You are, he began. Look, she pointed to the dome. Look, Poe receives his accolades. A smile lingered on her as she clapped her small hands, the plaudit muffled by her dainty gloves. The love between our Albion and the great Brandonia he still guides owes, owes to him, she turned to Philby. And that, she said with an iron edge to her voice, that flows from none but Mistress Lizzie and her virginity, I might say her willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the bitch Lizzie flourished, what, three hundred years ago. Philby did not intend to shriek, yet he did. Your mistress, Elizabeth, was a codswallop of legs spread and spunk. Master, Master Hillier looked up from his snifter. Hm? he said. Philby's voice dropped to a hiss. Your precious Lizzie Tudor ground all that could be gained from that alleged dry hole of hers down there for decades. Oh, her plotting, planning, withholding, giving Connie a Falari when it did the good. The bitch wanted war. Can you imagine that? War. A thing not seen on earth since, since, since. Other than for small matters, not since, Lord Jesus, yes. But I think, as she, a war or two may have done some good. You broke bond with me. His breath fogged her lenses. You prompted, promised aid and silence. Yes, she said, but mine, I fear, is the more pressing matter, Philby. I'm persuaded that, well, academically, your little trip was... She thought for a moment. Pointless, she said. And my course of research will benefit from seniority I will gain by, by fucking me. Uh, as you say, lesser master Philby... I suggest, Master Mary Mariah, that you have too much of your subject in you. You have become the bitch, Elizabeth Tudor and all. And your proof of the... what is it? That Lord Dickens' declaration was made in public because of some mumble-mumble, etc., etc. The wide blue circles of her lenses flashed in his eyes. That his declaration, yes, was a ploy, but a ploy, a ruse, that he feigned a madness to break contract with his publisher, proposed to the Queen. Why, what, 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 what madness? As he sputtered, spittle dashed her lenses. Philby, our little world is burrows, tiny voyages, to minute pasts, to prove points, dare I say, more literary than substantive, this fuss between one course of the university at King's and another, one branch of study and the next, it seeks answers. And I, I know the questions, you see. Well, I, I, I know the proper questions. Mistress Lizzie, indeed. I know what to ask and how to ask them. Did Dickens intend? Did he believe her Majesty would, would would what? Why, accept his declaration? Or was that a trick, eh? His words, his thoughts, were ever more desperate. He'd made this point so many times before. You see, was he shocked, you might ask, horrified, when she, the Queen, accepted his proffer? Did he, did, did he expect her abdication and, 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 and their flight off with them to well, this, see, uh, well, it, it's important stuff now, you see, for all time. It's, 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 he ground to a halt. Mariah had turned again to the crowd below, the ceremony around Poe. In sunflower light, the shadows, her face was, well, well, he'd not say it. Pitiful, she barely said. 
pitiful. There was the sound of a distant unlatching, the merest click from the Vasco's nose, and there was that moment, always at release, that long second, when the tethered creature of the air, now unconstrained, and from the mastery of men, broke bond with earth and made its first buckaroo bounce skyward. Quickly the captain, crew, the riggers and climbers, steersmen and bright-eyed ballast boys took control and broke the thing to their conjoined wills. Philby felt it in his legs, his gut, that moment of freedom, lilt and lift, and then the distant breathing of the engines sounded through the flooring, the walls, and the great machine rose and swam the air. "'Grab hold!' Hillier shouted. Seated in dark, deep leather, he sipped a thick altoduro from the purple isle. "'We move!' They moved. The airship hove eastward toward London. Mariah's shadows became alive in the room. Philby squinted at the brightness and the turning, diminishing view of King's Dome, of President Poe, and the happy, happy crowd. "'Hey-ho!' he said and rode the crest of the rising ship, his knees flexing with it. "'Hey-ho, the wind and the rain,' he added. "'Rain?' Hillier said, looking at the skylight. "'Rain?' "'A way of speaking, master, master,' Philby said. "'Then whiskey,' he told the bloke who whisked on silent by. Service aboard His Majesty's ships of air was superb, and nothing if not hushed.' Would that that window would open, he thought. The sunflower-bright collectors below gave a fierce light to Mariah's face. Her dark blue lenses reflected the ground, the widening distance. There is, there must be, a word, Master Philby, a word that might fill the space here. She touched her head with, with that. She pointed to the earth below, the mile on mile of the sunflower's gladdening light, the red sun, the white and silver flow of all the rivers of Salisbury that cut the circles of the beast and beaded it with silver and distant twists and turns. I am glad they never tried to damn those rivers for power, Philby. Glad the flowers are sufficient, aren't you? Hmm, he said. Oh, what is the word? I know there to be one, the word for this accommodating mix of nature and the engineered. She spread her arms at the vista of earth and machine. Well, ah well, I cannot dredge it from me. I have a slippery hold upon our language, I fear. Hmm, Philby said. Perhaps he could just... Toss her through the window glass. Novastella, 1604, determined a certain course in human events. That exploding star was calculated to have been within the local galaxy. What a stir! The poet, Johannes Kepler, later noted for his systematic appreciation of the object in his Posia Lunga Sulla Suppressa Luminosa con le Ramificazioni, a long work on the bright surprise with complications, published his initial thoughts upon it in De Stalanova Pede Serpentari. The maths alone in this succinct twelve stanza terza rima caused heads to shake. The brightness of the bright surprise inspired some to say, 
Ah, another's, oh. Still another, Orazio Gentileschi's little girl Artemisia, said, Oh, how disappointingly pretty. She said it in Italian, of course. Soon it passed, but the physical poets of Academe took a longer view. The surprise was studied, scanned. Chemographs were made, its numbers measured and balanced by human calculators, and those who used Oakham's notional devising, or the small machine, as it became known in those years after the full flowering of King Salisbury. Uh, though Oakham's notion was anything but small, it being five tons of weight and comprised of 2,196 bright iron wheels, shafts, and cams, all working upon an iron frame more than the height of a man and running near four meters in length. But Oakham's small machine was turned by hand and played its melody slowly. Yet its computations were faster by far than human calculators— and the numbers dancers throughout the 1600s made beautiful music with that antique thing. That one disappointingly bright, surprising star and Oakham's notion, however, yielded some interesting results. The final computation was announced at the World Colloquy of 1821, a mere 200 and a few years after. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. After Novastella 1604, why hurry, one bright light of the time said. It's not as though anyone is chasing after us, what? Not as though this science folly all matters to anyone, anyone in particular, eh? The good Sir Franklin, however, was noted as much for his lassitude as he was his witless lack of brevity. The full realization of the vasty powers unleashed by a star in collapse began to be understood by those of a more poetic nature who cared for such things, and a great silence descended. The silence was precipitated by Davy's ejaculation. 
In our neighbourhood, that thing came that close to us. Well, the silence lasted for years. It was, of course, the silence of thought, a stillness of private cogitation that reached to the highest levels of academe. Finally, 1833 it was, discussion recommenced, Lord Davies' vocal horror at his realization of the randomly violent nature of the universe gave rise to a singular thought. Put simply, the thought was, we must know. The thought arose not in one place, but in hundreds, the world around. The idea grew, until the great gathering of 1839 simply had to be held. The gather attracted polloi, commons, lords, artists, poets, and the Queen herself to the Athenaeum, London. Here it was that ideas were proposed, funding approved, and the thing itself, the beast, was begun. A machine for the computational analysis and catalogic rendering of the galaxy, its stellar components and types, its dark parts and brightly dusted places. This great machine was conceived and designed so as to recreate our nearby universe upon thick sheets of fool's cap, or so announced the beast's first master, Master Charles Babbage, and it was to be built where? Why, upon that pleasant stretch of island countryside that held no importance for anyone whatever, upon old Salisbury Plain near Sarum Hill, where nothing was except some sheep. Babbage's tactile sky, as Oakham might have called it in his day, was in time to enable computational artists to foresee with comfortable accuracy when our earth might be set upon by the anovization of a nearby star. In less academic terms, the beast was made to predict the end of the world. And, of course, it did no such thing. Simply, the eventual engine on Salisbury Plain made time travel possible. Having accomplished that, it made Philby's ride inevitable. The genteel boat trip of the Masters of Kings to London, to the River Avon by tricoach, thence by boat to the Thiamus, and from there by packet boat to Commons Hall itself, had been swift, lovely, and horrible. Commons Hall by Thiamus River was dark and dusty. Uh, we are here not to bring you to not a master, um, <laughs> The uninspiring member paused to consult the docket a long one through which they had proceeded but a quarter way by the hour Philby's name had been called. "'Master Philby?' he finished. "'No, no, uh, certainly not,' Philby said. Above, in the gallery of the Well of Commons, Hillier and Maria sat happily absent from his side. Uh, "'Yet,' began the uninspiring member, uh, he left the air blank. "'Er—' "'Yet,' Philby ventured, "'yet we must be assured your piracy,' an impressive younger member said. "'It's just a little ride,' Philby counted his voice, reached no farther than his own nose. "'Your piracy,' the impressive young member insisted, "'has resulted in no—no uh, no, uh, substantive,' an elder member leaned in to correct, "'no substantive problem, yes, yes,' the younger member looked about him. A florid member drummed upon the table with his pen. "'Look, Philby,' he said, "'did you touch anyone?' 
Philby opened his mouth. "'Did you move anything? Did you break or take anything, burn, steal, or have your way with anything? Did you do anything, anything at all, that might have disaccommodated the flow?' Disaccommodated, Philby said, suddenly excited. Well, that, now that is a most interesting word. Now that word, did you encounter anyone? Did anyone speak with you, touch you? Ah, Philby began. So you did. They did. Well, I breathed. I exhaled. I had a drink. Several. But I pissed them out. I, I left them all behind. I did. As for moving things, well, yes, I... "'I suppose I must have done.' <laughs> "'The eldest member groaned. "'His groan was noted. "'Master Philby,' the bright young member leaned forward, "'and with him the florid member. "'A beam from the skylight caught their wigs. "'A dark shadow fell across the florid member's forehead, "'giving him the look of a heavy-browed simian. "'This is a serious breach of academic protocol,' "'the young member said.' Hillier's affirmative growl from above reached the floor of the well. Philby resisted the impulse to turn round. Well, yes, members, yes, yes, I was there. I touched, I drank, I sniffed, I, I may have belched. <laughs> and had you leave, lesser master Philby, the heavy-browed younger member pressed. Well, not in so many words. Mm. Ah... The unimpressive member sighed. But, you see, the, the pressing nature of the truth demands discipline to the principles of academic... What's it called? Again, the younger member. I care very little that you may have brought a few ounces of antique whiskey back in your gut. He turned to his fellow members. We don't care how you may have rubbed shoulders with a few people now, alas, deceased these many years. What does concern me here, now, and what should concern us, and you, lesser Master Philby, is the breach of, what's it, academic discipline. Yes, discipline, sir. Discipline must be maintained. Uh, but, but, the unimpressive member began again. A fart from your butts, cried the younger member. It is, what's it, discipline that rules, sir, else chaos reigns. But, but, you see, Lord Dickens's declaration, Philby began. Lord Dickens, yes, yes, the bright young man said. Please tell us why you took this, this, invited into his own, his special part of academe. Philby relaxed somewhat. "'This uh, slip, yes, yes, you see, my voyage, it was for a few moments only. "'But in those moments I heard him, honourable members, Lord Dickens himself, "'one of your predecessors in this body. "'And didn't he hold forth on the perfidy of that northern pretender, "'as he called Prince Albert, didn't he ever? "'Why, this upstart, this northern pretender, "'affianced to our glorious queen, "'will marry himself in his frigid climes "'to our green-grown land. Uh, "'Then, then, then came his declaration, as we know it. "'He said, oh, and how I love her, "'how I do love her dainty majesty,' "'Philby quoted by rote.' I heard it. These ears, these eyes saw no recording skin between us. And then, doesn't Dickens say, now he'd pull Cousin Albert's nose, marry her myself before that morganatic consanguinity comes to pass, he cried. <laughs> Philby sat back, still chuckling. <laughs> it, it was madness, sure, Philby said. The unimpressive member looked to his fellows in commons. 
"'Yes,' the member said. Philby wished suddenly for a rum-laced calf. His hands shook, perhaps with excitement, remembering, perhaps not. "'You see, Athenaeum Hall was full, full to overflow.' There was nothing. "'Were all their lordships, uh, fiscal, temporal, and academic, their brothers, your precedent members in commons, and, 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 and I suppose all their sisters and their cousins whom they reckoned by the dozens and their aunts Philby paused to feel the mood before him. There was nothing. And uh, there are um, what have you would assemble there. They were to, there to celebrate the beginnings, the first linking, and what would become our beast. Nothing. Well, any road, that's what has drawn Her Majesty to the place. Uh, that we know. So there, as we've all seen in books, the celebratory buntings, the chemographs displaying the history of such machines, the, the plans for the beast, the artful renderings, Hogarth's visions, and the rest all the way back, he raised his voice for Hillier's sake, to the great Occam himself and his notional devising. Yes, the bright young member said, yes. So, so, so there he was, Dickens in person, and in his copse, I might add, which is not part of the record, public or private, Sir Charles Lord Dickens, the man himself, was a bit drunk, and doesn't he mount? Philby raised his finger to the dark and distant rafters of the well. Doesn't he mount to the toppiest part of the rotunda? Toppiest? the eldest member was almost heard to say, and from the trumpet balustrade on high didn't he roundly declare undying love for the Queen and his thorough detestation of all things north of, and uh, easterly too, our island in Commonwealth. Did he speak augmented? the eldest member whispered. Uh, pardon? Philby asked. "'With a—the uh, eldest looked about, cupped his hands about his mouth. "'Oh!' Philby said. "'No, no,' he said. "'The man's lungs are leather. "'Huge things,' he said, directing the comment to Master Maria. "'No, no, Your Honor. he filled the space with just his voice, unimproved.' "'The point, Philby.' the young member said. He leaned forward to duck a beam of light that had tweaked his eyes. The point. Hmm. He gives impression of interest, Philby thought. False, he realized a moment later. Well, I'll quote him perfect, Philby said. That troublesome Nord, you said that, the young member said. I'll, I'll give that uh, him... "'More agony with my good left fist than might be had or can be gained—I I think it was that uh, can be gained—from tooth impacted or from a plenty of goose-fat ingested by a sugary gut,' "'hmm,' some anonymous member said. Uh, "'And he said more,' Philby said more, as sweat had begun above his eyes. "'Much more was, but—but—but uh, you've forgotten,' the young member said." "'Well, I, I tried to copy it out, but—but—' but... Philby stared at his hands, the shaking things, the freckled skin, the faint red hairs. "'Well, Philby,' came the voice of a distant member, silent until now, "'and so you could not, and so you did not, and so your students—' "'They were to have benefited how?' 
"'By your escapade, how were they to have benefited? "'Well?' "'A brief silence ensued. "'The theretofore silent member cleared his throat. "'Well, now or never,' Philby thought. "'Well, here is my reason,' he began. "'We know—' "'Don't we all know Dickens's declaration, his love for the Queen, his rallying cry? It, "'It is written how he gathered his fellow parliamenters, all, etc., etc. We, "'We know all that, yes?' "'Yes,' the previously silent member urged, a glower in his voice. "'Philby bungled forth. "'Well, I say, it was something else.' "'Well, I say nothing,' the invisible member said. "'So?' "'Down he comes. Dickens descends. Declaiming as he does, he rounds the stairway down from the balustrade. He moves. He's weaving among his fellows, the lords, and etc., etc. And he stops. He stops by me. He touches the velvet of my collar. Here,' he flapped the purple thing for all the members' view, "'this collar, I, I think you still might see an imprint here, the Dickensian finger right here.' He looked down his nose to see, or here, perhaps, he craned his neck to find the spot. Any road, he touched it, me, here. He touched me as he proclaimed with stinking breath and rainbows of spittle the declaration historic itself. He himself would wed Her Majesty. She must say good-bye to that northern relative, as he said, that, 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 what did I say, that troublesome Nord. Is it troublesome Nord again? The invisible member said. That Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, if, as he said, she would take the hand of a scribbler, this maker of laws, this genius maker of fortunes, and, 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 and Philby squinted, and breaker of Covenants, ah, I heard it, members, heard it with my ears. I breathed him as he spake it. Well, well, there it is, well, there it was. <laughs> Philby, let the silence speak the obvious. There what is, said the impressive younger member. Well, have I the right of it, then? "'The right of what? The right to my voyage, "'to have heard and seen in my own flesh uh, Charlie's declamation, "'my undergrads call it to learn the true reason for Dickens's—' "'Oh, a fart on Dickens,' the bright young member said. "'The great machine, soon to be called the Beast, grew and grew.' Upon Saturn Hill the masters and master-masters envisioned, oversaw, and decreed. It began with pomp and flourish at the Athenaeum, London. One small engine of gold was tethered to a second of silver. This done with great ceremony and a plentitude of fuss, speech, and bluster, it all created its own piece of history and literary tradition, and when that was ended, with all parties dispersed to their separate fates, the two machines were boxed and taken with great ceremony to Sarum. There, still cratered, the one of unusable gold and the other of pointless silver were placed in a corner. A third machine, this of plain cast and bright iron, useful, was set in a foundation of stone— then enclosed in wood and brick, then connected to a fourth machine, and that to a fifth. And so it continued. 
The machines, turned first by rough, untutored hands, then by beasts, soon after by steam, then invariably by the lightning fluid, began to deliver themselves of preliminary assessments and other most fascinating pieces of data. Oh, a myriad of occupations were found for the thing. Philby sulked, reduced, reduced, ah, reduced. London was drear compared to King Salisbury, truly was. And an airship back? There were none. Trade in the East, some said. A bonanza, some such nonsense. What in the world cared he for bonanzas, for trade in the East? In this piping time of commerce, Eastern trade was, was, well, well, he, a master, a, a former master, had no metaphor. Two nights he and Hillier shared conjoined rooms in the great Pancras Terminus. Master Maria slept elsewhere. London. Master, Mary, Maria, Master, Master Hillier, the times, his life, his reduced state, they formed a drear, drab colloquy, reduced night, the distant snore of Hillier, the bleakness of all his morrows yet to come, gave him thought of night forever. His watch glowered at him from the night table. It was middle night. Wells, he thought, that dull man Wells, he, he's about to ride the beast. Now, perhaps so soon at least, he'd slip back, skinned, finicked, and proper off to when to observe what, some minor thing of interest, of interest to dreary Wells alone and no one else, all substantiated, witnessed, writ down, and filed in wells, suited in darkling steel and plastic, would shuffle, invisible, insensate, through a world he loved and could never, never would, never ever could touch. The feel, smell, and taste of that time always denied him. Snapping images to be canned, recorded, be numbered by an assistant is pilchered in a tin back home, back home at King's, tethered to the past, where Philby now should be. Alas, enough, he shouted aloud. Philby's joyride, they'd said, they'd said and reduced him. Now he would watch others say it. Her, he'd watch the awful Mary Maria herself go voyaging, tickled in numbers, and, and, and Philby sulked. And as to the principal uses of the beast, those prime goals of creating a model upon fool's cap of the nearby galaxy, and determined therefrom when a nearby star might burst and wipe away the earth and all its garden joys— well, when the men of physics and like sciences looked at that wondrous printed model, they pointed to a suspect star. It was not near, its ennovization would pose no danger to earth or man or garden, but if that star did, on or about such and such a date, die the stellar death as predicted on fool's cap, why then earth's end could be known. The world waited, counted down to zero, waited more, then began counting upward. 
when a dozen years had been waited and so counted, with nothing having happened well, that, alas, was that. Science that had been mastered of the beast, <laughs> farewell. By then, however, the beast and its tending represented a significant portion of Commonwealth economy, and by then other uses had been found for it. Philby woke. In the next room, Hillier snored. London. Shit, I'm still only in London. Sunlight streamed. It does that even in London, he thought. He dressed quickly. At no pains for a looking-glass, he needed his cravat sufficient for London society, on his way down in the chattering open steel lift. The bustle of the terminal was fierce. An animal howl came at him of a sudden, a flowing mass of young men and women in commercial uniform returning from, heading to, whisking here, fleeing there, made a well-muscled din as they elbowed their way through breakfast and each other. Standing, almost afraid to plunge in among them, Philby watched the great creature's blood and muscles pump a thousand and more human corpuscles through the place. The stench of money nearly overwhelmed Philby's poor meal. They make such heat, he thought as he sipped. As he did, one small bustler-by bumped Philby's elbow. Watcher! The child growled at him on the run, caring little that careless he had splashed brown calf down Philby's nearly clean white blouse. What cheer or watcher, Philby wondered. He dismissed the question. Mere boys, unschooled girls, went his thought toward the creature's vanishing rump. Yet, correct, he was a watcher, one without cheer. Then Mariah sat before him, she, still a master, and he, well, well, he, he was not. Gerald Philby thought he might profitably go forth, submerge himself in the throng, then drown himself in the watery depths thymus side. Go to the river, he thought, looking at her. Surely someone will slit and sack me there. Oh, the prospect was no worse than his current state. Oh, they have nothing but contempt, she said. A tall glass of something green was placed before her. For us, we are too still for them. He wanted, he thought, he would like to, but phew, there was nothing or no one who could say what he thought he wanted, what he thought he would like to at this point do. So, yes, he said. The Poloi believe in us, believe that we make the world a better place, believe that our efforts help us understand ourselves better. They believe our lives run smooth and straight. He sipped his calf, his elbows close, his eyes on the liquid. Hmm, he said. I suggested to Master Master Hillier we take return by iron rail. He thought not. He fears the carriages, for some reason, something about elderly bridges and ill-trained and most probably drunken operators. Mm. He'd rather take the airship. Mm. Mm. She sipped more green. He drained his calf. I am sorry for you, Gerald, she said quietly. For your sake, I mean. I'd not have inconvenienced you, but... Things are afoot, and your reduction does open certain possibilities. In my mind, Philby, I see things other than... 
she broke off. What are you thinking? Would the time never pass? Would this world of nights and London never end? Would an airship never be available? Will I never break her neck? Would no dark disaster ever take my life? Would she never shut up? These and other thoughts whispered around her words. We might return by Iron Road. Yes, if return there will ever be, he said. Master, he added. She placed the glass of green on the table. The Poloi believe us to have a straightforward life. Important as our work is, they care little for that which we bring forth, the issues we resolve. So far as they know, the matters of academe are smoothly determined. The earth-defining matters with which we deal come simply. An input at one end of a question and clearly articulated results are put out at the other. There's no conflict like their lives, like, she smiled at him, like the beast itself, as it's perceived, data in, answer out. No one sees the cogs, the wheels, the friction, the lightning fluids opening, closing, she smiled at him. Yes? Codswallop, he said. Yes, she said, and drank the last of her green beverage. Depending... The three sat dinner, nightfall. Still no airship. Hilliard delved his watch. Blast, he said. Philby fidgeted. At King's, another master would slip that night. He knew another and another. Here, Pancras Terminus had settled for nightfall. The day's flow had properly halted as night wrapped a vast shroud round the city. The Terminus was a tomb, and would be until early next morning when the airships would gather like vast cows above the city, tethered to Pancras's nipples, and commerce would flow again. Mm, yeah, well, confounded Poe will have no trouble, I reckon. Hillier grunted between forks of beef and carroted potato. Troublesome goat, Philby muttered. Hmm, Hillier glared. Poe. Amaragonia sends him to negotiate connectivity between our beast and their, what's it called, the great Sasham, indeed. The man's a menace. He hates our island commonwealth. He always has. Lord Dickens and he, we're at odds for, for, hmm, hmm. Hillier's grunt bubbled through a dripping wad of Yorkish pud. And he muddles the airship service. Mayhap we'll have to ride the iron, eh, Master Mary, if we are to return to important stuff, hmm? As you say, she said. Soon the nature of the thing began to change. At its heart, the machine remained cams and shafts, cogs and catches, their turning frictions smoothed by Baum's sweetest castorine. As the array spiraled outward, as man learned, the parts became smaller. Smaller, their frictions and functions shifted, their abilities increased. With time, the constituent elements became different, utterly. At the core... Hard by kings, turning metal was the thing. After the first turns, though, other forces were needed to energize it. Dams were thought of. No, the power generated by the decay of the first particle was considered oh, too unstable. That's too dangerous. Why, stick too much of that stuff together and it wants to blow apart. Uh, that could make a right mess, Master Dodgson explained. The inherent force of sunlight soon was harnessed to generate the lightning fluid. Above the spreading rings grew cross-braced iron towers. 
mirrored petals atop each, open to the rising sun, and followed it to the setting's darkness. The beast, as it was coming to be known, pumped the lightning of the sun itself through itself, sun-fluid opened and closed, minute gates in the stream, the gates opened, closed, closed, opened. The beast counted one, two, two, one, counted so swiftly over and over, that finally, at the outer rings, answers came forth, real answers. Philby wandered. Pancras lay behind, the river Thymus ahead. The ancient streets, the old and dripping stones Thymus side, were wonderfully still after the city's clamorous flow of human, animal, and machine traffic had halted for the night. Snugged nearby were ships, their holds gaping to the sky. They exhaled a fetid breath, indrawn in ports around the globe— with the flowing tide the wharves breathed, ever-wet wood and straining cables groaned one street away. The teeming warehouses between which Philby walked towered over, crowded closer to him. And within it all, the hovering miasma of cargoes, night, tide, and river, mud, mixed with the stink of bilge and sodden death. That topped even the draining effluence of the million busy London bowels that poured here and there into the waiting thymus. With it all, Philby wished for more. He wished for a yellow rain, an acid fog, something larger to smash, to match the stench and top the inner man that Philby felt himself to be. But the sky was clear, the stars bright, the temper of the air comfortable. His walking stick made a slow tap, tap, tap along the empty night. Will no one slit my throat, he wondered at the stars. Will no one rid me of this meddlesome flesh? He sought a pub, some place full and smoky, a place where no one knew his name. Gerald Philby, newly made no one. Then wasn't there a pub? The thing was down a long street, nothing more than a narrow corridor of old brick and timbered walls, walls that sagged in quiet starlight. He saw its light. He heard the music of the place. He turned in its direction. Mayhap someone will meet me along the way. Or in the place, he thought. Mayhap that man will end me and end... He thought of knives, of garrets, of being cushed and dumped into the ratted flats of mud, and, and thinking, he became aware of the long shadow he cast from the yellow lights overhead. More lights are needed, he said to no one. There was near half a kilometre between him and the pub, and, and just three public lamps to bright the way. And dim things they are, too, he thought. Yes, yes, he agreed with himself, yes. His shadow lengthened ahead of him and then grew pale as he passed from the light of one to the dark nearing the next. Halfway there, he heard the footfalls. Above the lapping of the river and the tuneful wheeze of a squeeze-bock organ from inside the presumptive safety of the pub, he heard some other one behind him. My death, he thought, with surprising concern. Someone will want my... But he had no idea what someone might take from him that he would more willingly give than... 
His pace quickened. The footfalls from behind were quieter than his, not by stealth but soft by nature. He quickened again, but would not turn, would not look. He fixed instead the pub. Make a pact with night and self, he thought. When I can read that sign, he bargained, then I will be safe. Naught will harm me then when I can see those words. So faster yet his legs ache now, the words upon the board. A quicker pace, and he'd be running, running, yes, ahead. He fixed upon the sign. He could read it. It was prospect of... of... The marshland, and still a shadow, fell next to his. The shadow was long and dark. No, no, he thought, the pact, I've won. Prospect of the marshland. The long shadow overtook him. Then, gasping, he smelled flowers. He smelled her. Master Maria drew alongside him. Wait, Philby, she said quietly, wait. She took his arm and brought him to a gentle halt by the side of a building so anonymous as to be invisible except for black timbers and dripping brick. What, he said, show Master Mary Maria deeply drawn breath, <laughs> not likely. Two things, she said. First, hush. She consulted a tiny timepiece that hung from a slender necklace. He drew breath to speak, but wait, she said. Silence. Stillness wrapped them. He drew another breath, and her grip tightened on his arm and shoulder. She looked toward the far end of the narrow way. He swallowed what he was about to say in the intensity of her stillness. A minute passed. Then another in that minute, Philby thought an airship drifted overhead, or perhaps an underground iron car had passed beneath them in the hollows below the street. Perhaps both, but something had passed. That it had, indeed, but there was nothing above or below, nothing at all. There, she said finally. There, she reached into a reticule and drew something, a small book from it. Well, she said finally. That is a disappointment. But you felt something, Gerald, yes? No, nothing, he said with assurance. He clearly saw her face, pinched. Praise London for its public lamps, he thought again. I can see her. The second thing, she began. Come, have a drink, he said. A few dozen meters away, bright lit by the public light, was the prospect of... He had another moment, a moment of something passing, something fled. His inner ear spun, he shook his head. Philby's <laughs> himself again, he said. There stands the prospect of the gibbet. It's my treat, of course, a fitting place to celebrate my change of station. The edge to his own voice unnerved him. Come, Gerald, she said softly. The second thing is that Hillier has decided. We return tomorrow. We shall ride the iron. But the pub's just... The sign for the prospect of the gibbet swung softly in the lamplight at the end of the street, so close he could hear it creak. Another time, she said, and stared him back the bright wet street toward Pancras. <laughs> This is Larry Santoro. Just relax. I am not going to give you one of my long, fetching pieces. This is sort of why of the story, not how it came to be. 
Lord Dickens is typical. It began with a picture, a cover illustration from the Starship Sofa Stories collection. The picture didn't illustrate anything from the book. It was just an image that the artist, uh, Skeet Sienski, got lodged into his head watching an old film. He put it onto paper, or computer screen in this case, and that was that. Good picture. Nice image. Someone posted onto the forum that it'd be nice if somebody wrote a story to go with it, and I said, yeah, maybe I will, one day. And that was that. Then Tony called, said, why not do that, and we'll sell it, help raise some money for Spider and Gene Robinson. If you don't already know it, Spider and Gene are having some financial difficulties right now. Gene has cancer, and writers, as you probably realize, unless they sell to the movies, don't make huge amounts of money. They do well or can do well. And when you're spending most of your time and energy helping your wife get over a rather terrible disease, you don't have much time left to do things like write. So... I said yes, and then it went back to Skeet's picture. There's a story in there, obviously. There are dozens and dozens of them. The picture, the picture, it, it suggested things. Now, who the hell is that? Not what is that. That's not interesting. It's a who. Even if the lady in ice is a robot, she's got to be a who-bot, not a what-droid or anything else. Trash cans aren't interesting. R2-D2 is. She is interesting. She's old-fashioned. She's like that Maria robot in Metropolis. Isn't she? Yes. Well, yes, she is. And those cave guys, are they long ago, or are they our grandchildren, the heirs of some Armageddon yet to be? I don't know. So on top of that, Cecilia and I are watching a British miniseries from years ago. It's on DVD. Life of Charles Dickens. Uh... At a party, Dickens blurts out that he is in absolute love with the new queen, Queen Victoria. Well, suddenly, that became the colonel. It was kind of the defining moment of creation. So, it's a time travel tale. That creature in ice, she is a traveler. Yet, she does look like the Maria robot from Metropolis. So, she's Maria, the time traveler. I changed that. Here, it's Mariah. For what reason? I like it. That's why. It's the way the name is pronounced in School for Scandal, which was one of my favorite directing gigs back when I was doing that sort of thing, so why not? Mariah. And Philby? Well, in the 1960 George Powell film of The Time Machine, he's the central character, Herbert Wells, the time traveler's red-headed buddy, Philby. Hillier. Uh, he's another friend of the time traveler of the Wells book. In the movie, he's played by Sebastian Cabot. And I resisted, by the way, the temptation to make the explorer Sebastian Cabot part of the background of the story. Dickens, too, is a part, obviously. Uh, he's not our Dickens. In fact, none of the characters in this story are what we know them to be if we already know their names. He is some Dickens, and our time-traveling Mariah is a retro-future person from the early 20th century, the tail end of the 19th. But, ah, this is not the 19th century that we all know and love, nor is this the 20th century that we knew, not with 900 square miles of computing machines covering the Salisbury Plain and nuclear power stations, or was it solar collecting arrays that were powering them? Whatever. It goes from there. As I wrote, uh, trying to find a stylistic balance between 
Jane Austen's cool detachment and the verbal histrionics of Charles Dickens. I found myself dropping little literary puns into the stew, putting Shakespearean beaumonts into the mouths of lesser mortals. In the story, by the way, Shakespeare probably never made it to London. If he had, he would have been cited as a dull church warden or politician or something. I was also inserting little anachronistic quotations from Bob Dylan, the, the Beatles, Leonard Cohen, and others as part of the narrative flow of the thing. By God, I was having too much fun. And I hope you're having fun listening. I hope you'll even have more fun buying and downloading the thing from the Starship. You can't buy the book itself. That went to a generous bidder who has the sole copy. So how are you going to see all of the artwork Skeet hath wrought to make this thing happen? Without your own copy, how are you going to suss out all those little cultural puzzles without text in front of you? Don't you want to see for yourself how much mucking about I do between screen and scream? How many stupid mistakes I make and miss in the edit? Or how I miss my own point when I record something, unless you're able to follow along with it? How else are you going to sit in the comfort and security of your office at work and sneak an afternoon read, just like I did when I was writing the damn thing, without your having bought a copy to download? Don't you have the urge to do a choral reading with the podcast, just... Us, together, you and me, in the privacy of your own room. Well, of course you do. And most important, how else are you going to give a little bit to Spider and Jean? I know, I know, I know, I know. You've been buying their books and reading them for years, decades. They've got a lot of your money already, but come on. This is special. This is life. This is a helping hand. Thousand points of light stuff. And after all, this is Christmas. You know, it's the plum pudding steaks of holly in the heart time of year for the Ebenezers among us. And you know what happened to him. He just got reborn as a superannuated Jim Carrey and got kicked all over London in 3D and blasted into the sky on his own candle snuffer or whatever it was. So come on, unlimber that credit card, tap the keys. You'll be happier for it. And God bless us, everyone. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure machine. Shuttle set for launch. Aerodrome people in three, two, one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.